So my name is Matthew Falk. Um, I've been a member of this congregation for three years. I attend with my wife, Allie, and we've got our three-year-old daughter downstairs. I think she made it downstairs. Hopefully she did. Um, and Tony uh, asked me a few weeks ago to maybe be a part of this class because I'm an attorney who practices in the area of estate planning, asset protection, some elder law, a uh, way to plan for assets <clears throat> making, down, making their way down from one generation to the next. Um, and that seemed to be a very uh, applicable part of this aging class that we were going through because we all age, as we heard. Nate set it up perfectly this morning with all his talk about death and, and planning, so I really do need to thank him for that. But it, yes, sir. Okay, even with a microphone? For such a big guy, I speak very softly. He left. How's this? Okay. Not much point of a class if you can't hear me, right? But that may be good for you. <laughs> um, so in talking about aging and, and estate planning, we kind of wanted to bring those two things together because they do go hand in hand. And it's all about making sure that the plans that you have, the relationships that you have with your family members, with, with your beneficiaries, all comes to fruition in a way that you would want it to come through. You don't want the state having any sort of say in who takes care of you in, in matters of incapacity or inability to make decisions. And you certainly don't want the state to have any say so in who gets your stuff after you pass away. Because I won't ask anybody to raise their hands, but if you've never taken the affirmative steps to set up an estate plan by either a will or some sort of trust or powers of attorney, the state still has a plan for you. You do have an estate plan. And it may not ever fit with the goals that you have, your family dynamic. The court may wind up picking somebody that you would, would never elect dog catcher, let alone make your healthcare decisions or make your financial decisions. So estate planning is a necessary part of growing older. It's a part of aging because it's a way to make sure that you're retaining as much control as possible as you get into your later years. And so I remember when I first moved here from California in 2010, I was an associate to uh, an older attorney in his early 70s. His wife was in her late 60s, early 70s. And we went out for dinner one night after I'd started working for, him, working for him, working with him. And I remember his wife saying that getting older was not for the weak of heart. It wasn't for cowards. Um, and she began to regale us with some of her health issues. And certainly I learned what had happened to Bill uh, right before I got there with cancer in his leg. So, I mean, there is a lot that goes on with, <clears throat> with aging, possibly getting sick, what happens to your assets, who pays for long-term care, who makes decisions for you in the event something needs to be accomplished. Um, and so the goal in aging, I think, for all of us, no matter what our base age is at this moment for those of us in the room, is that you want to make sure you age with dignity, that you're not left in a bed in a hospital in the hallway being ignored, that you are not uh, having the people in your family that you trust to make your decisions in those positions of authority to make decisions. Uh, you want to have, to have, be able to access the best care possible. You don't want to be in a questionable facility. You don't want to be taken care of by folks who may not know exactly what they're doing. And so you want to have paperwork and documents in place to say, here's where I'm going, here's who's taking care of me. Here are the companies that I can rely on my family to either come see me in my home if we're doing a, a, a waiver program through TenCare, which is the state-based Medicaid program, or if I'm in a nursing home, can I still have some sort of waiver program pay for additional care that I can get through healthcare coordinators through companies like LifeLinks, Visiting Angels, 
or uh, always best care seniors, and I'll get to that in, in a little bit. And so the last two points of this aging plan that I definitely want us to touch on is making sure that you have appointed those that people you trust in fiduciary capacities <clears throat> to ensure that the plan that you've set forward that works for you and your family actually is carried out. So we're going to spend some time talking about estate planning, and I know that that may be fun, that may be not, but we're all talking about death, so let's run with it. Um, estate planning is multi-generational, uh, so I see the age rage in this, in this auditorium, so I think we're looking at baby boomers talking to their Gen X kids who are making sure that the millennial kids who are off at college are taken care of in the event something happens. So if estate planning is always say, oh, I'm not rich, I don't have an estate, I'm young, I don't have anything, well, that's all not exactly true. If you own a bank account and you're over 18 years of age, you have something to plan for. If you have a minor child and own a home, a young family, you have something to plan for. If you are somebody above 55 years of age, you have grown children, you may have health concerns in your family, you have something to plan for. So this is a conversation I hope that we're able to have this morning where everybody's walking away with something thinking, oh, estate planning is not just for those other folks, it's for everybody like, everybody like us, it's for everybody. Um, my grandfather was in the military. Uh, I didn't necessarily grow in a military household, but he, was, he loomed a large enough figure in our lives that you know, we all kind of learned under him. And his, his way of going about things, his way of daily planning was always to you know, live by this credo of prior planning prevents poor performance, you know, the rule of five Ps, six Ps depending on who you talk to. But it's all a way of making sure that your end result is always born out of the proper planning that you put into it. You're not, you know, the best, the best output is what you put into it. And so we're not trying to leave anybody hanging, leaving in the lurch, hanging on a thread, not knowing what to do next. That all goes into estate planning. And estate planning is bringing the future into the present so you can do something about it now. Uh, that's a quote from Alan Lakin, who was a time management, uh, time management specialist guru. And I just thought that was kind of an appropriate quote for us to kind of give thought to kind of have hang in the room as we're discussing these kind of end of life matters. Um, because it is a way to get the best amount of control, the best, um, best plan possible to make sure that what you want done now, based on all the information that you have now at your disposal in this moment, you know that that's actually going to come to fruition if something were to happen to you, either by way of a, a disability or at your passing. Um, and so the, one of the things that always gives me <clears throat> pause when we talk, when I talk about this with clients, is how you can view estate planning. How can you look at it? What kind of metaphors can you use? And I think the name of our church is a perfect metaphor. It's a cornerstone. And what's a cornerstone? Anybody? Any architects in here? Any engineers? So, I mean, it's giving shape to the building. I mean, you're giving... You're giving an understanding to those who would walk through the building. You're giving a strong foundation for those who would follow after you to make sure that your plan is carried out. Without a plan, everybody's in chaos. And none of us in those final moments or in those moments of concern or distress, do you want to be living through the moment of what do I do next? Because that is a question that everybody asks, no matter what happens, what do I do next? And there's two ways to answer it. It's like, I don't know, shrug your shoulders. Or we have, you can still shrug your shoulders, but at least we have a roadmap here. We have a set of documents that you can take to an attorney to say, here's what we need to do because mom or dad has become sick. 
So family, plan, family stability is a, a main reason why you want to do your planning because you never want them to wonder what to do next, as we were saying earlier. You don't want them to just freak out in that moment, not just because of something happening to a parent or a child or a friend, but you, you don't want them to freak out not knowing who do I call, what document do I have, what documents do I need to make sure that these decisions are able to be made by the appropriate person. Don't have to worry, worry about going through a, a court-based system through a conservatorship. I think Damaris is going to talk a little bit about that in powers of attorney next week. So any overlap that I might speak to um, here more than once is always a good thing, right? Um, you don't want your family fighting amongst themselves. Believe it or not, when there's money involved, people tend to get a tad prickly. Um, and over the smallest amounts, uh, it boggles my mind that what money can do in those moments to families about making sure that somebody gets their, quote, fair share. And it just, it's, it's heartbreaking. There was a family two or three years ago came, in, came into my office, and I, I misread the situation because I thought the siblings got along fairly well, but after getting to know them a little bit longer, they couldn't stand the sight of each other. And they commonly had to sit across the table from each other. And they had a plan that was totally designed to put them at odds. Um, and so when you're, even, when, just, even by having an estate plan, you want to make sure it's there to facilitate an easy transition from one state to the next rather than playing family members off of each other. Um, that's maybe beside the point. Um, you don't want to leave unnecessary work undone. Um, another client of mine came in and his mother had died in 1991 with a will, but he had never probated it and he just kept the kept the home in his mother's name and, and never did anything. He kept it as a rental property, he, as an investment property. And he started to get sick and he needed to do his own plan, estate planning. And a lot of the siblings that he had, some of them passed away and they had their own kids. And so if, if he had probated the will in 1991, if he had actually saw the plan through to its fruition, there wouldn't have been any concern. But 25, 20, 24, 23 years later, <clears throat> He's having to not just visit with his siblings, some of whom are sick, some of whom he may not be very agreeable with anymore. And then he's having to visit with the kids of his deceased siblings, nieces and nephews, having to get their approval, having to get their uh, consent to what he was trying to do with this particular piece of property. Thankfully, everybody signed off and everybody put it into place, but there was a plan in place and he still ignored it. He still didn't do anything. And so if you were having folks... Um, not knowing what to do, or even knowing what to do and not doing it, that doesn't leave anybody off in a better position. So it's all a matter of keeping folks on task with an understanding of what's there to, to move things forward. Um, does anybody have any, any sort of experience with, with probate or a parent passing away with property and never have anything to been done? Can you share with that if you don't mind? What was your experience?
still, like, if there's a piece of property that's outside of the United outside of the state, um, it still has to go through probate, even if you have a will. When it goes through probate, you have to make sure there's enough assets in there to take care of that probate and what needs to be done. So all that planning is important, but even with all that planning, I would say that sometimes it's very difficult to walk through the, to walk down the path. Um, but that was my experience on actually all three of them. All three of them, at some point, someone didn't think they were giving their fair share. And, and that makes it really difficult, right? But, but, but it's there. I mean, you know that it's there, and it's going to be there unless you understand everyone that you're talking to. And you can actually have a discussion prior to that. Like a family, what I always try to do with all of this, all these individuals were aging except for one who passed away with a heart attack. So, but what I tried to do was get everybody together over a dinner and just talk. Talk about what they think, talk about what they want, and it helped a little bit, but overall, when it got down to the, the transition, I mean, the uh, transaction, I would say, uh, it got down. So that's my experience. I don't think I'd want to do it again. <laughs> Well, it's tough to do it once, let alone three times. Yeah. Anybody else want to share? Well, and, and as the two examples are bearing out, it's all about communication. It's about if you're the one signing the document, signing the dotted line, to be able to tell the people that you've put in positions of authority over them for decision-making purposes, saying the decision rests with you. There's gonna be a, there may be a lot of white noise that you have to deal with and, and flack from other siblings or other folks who think that they would be the better decision-maker. And you also have to let those folks know that. Say, listen, it's not, I'm not naming you, I'm naming your sister, I'm naming your brother to make these decisions. And here's why I've done that. Having family meetings, like Larry had mentioned last week, having an annual family meeting, or maybe even a, a you know twice, you know, every couple of years meeting, to say here's here's what we're doing, here's what we've decided, here's why we've chosen it, as a way to tamper down as much potential discord and disharmony in a family that can arise in a moment of where mom's had a second or third stroke. I mean, that's the last time you want family, you know, biting at each other's heels. And so, a way of communicating to everybody about what's in place is just, you know, uh, <laughs> the best way to move forward. It's that, 
the end of the G.I. Joe cartoons in the 80s, you know, the more you know. That's half the battle sort of thing. Um, I was never allowed to watch G.I. Joe. My mom didn't like guns. Um, so I think as a part of, as we're, we're talking about aging, you know, there's a part of making sure that we've got long-term care as a part of a discussion, and I wanted to ask Scott to maybe come up and say a few words about some of the things that we need to consideration for, for long-term care purposes. So I'm going to give you a quote. I want to see if anybody does. Oh, recording, okay. So I was going to give you a quote, and I want you to tell me where you think it comes from. Medicare will not cover long-term care expenses. We recommend that you seek out your own qualified long-term care plan. Where is that written? Nope. Medicare, well, if you look on your Social Security statement on the inside cover, that's the exact definition. I don't believe everything the government tells me, but anytime they're telling me they're there to get out of paying for something, I believe that. All right. So that, that is the number one thing. And I always start with a, start with a story. Um, I was a freshman in high school and I'm an only child. There's not a lot of family members in our family. And my grandmother told me, she said, Scott, I've got about $200,000. I'm going to leave you. I'm thinking a freshman in high school, I'm never going to have to work a day in my life. <laughs> I'm moving to Mexico and I, I'm going to live good. Um, so a freshman in college, she ends up going into a long-term care facility, stays there four years, liquidates all $200,000. Now I got to work. <laughs> Here's the thing. If I would have known what I know now, I would have said, Gigi, why don't we take a portion of that, 25% of that or whatever it is, and we put it somewhere that's going to pay for some type of care, long-term care, that you can leave me 175, 150. I know for a fact that she would be up in heaven, you know, saying, hey, I'm glad I made this decision. You know, we think about, uh, with what Matt's talking about is, is making sure you have your, your life in order is so important. I meet with people all the time that they have these stories about their family, they didn't do a good job and didn't do the planning. And, and another question, how long did it take to settle Marilyn Monroe's estate? Does anybody remember that? took over 40 years, 40 years. Some of the people that were beneficiaries on that did not even receive any of the benefit because they were dead before, before it finally got settled. It's that important. It's that important. So what we talk about is the long-term care planning of it. And, and the, the stats and studies tell us that people turning 65 today at some point will need some form of long-term care about 70% of time, 70% of time. If you look at statistics, uh, odds of your home being in a house fire are one in uh, 1,200. The odds of you needing, um, uh, I'm sorry, the odds of being in a car, a major car wreck, one in 240. The odds of needing your, your health care for a critical uh, event, 21 in 900. But what are your odds of needing a long-term care? Once again, when you hit 75, it's about 70, or 65, it's about 70%. That's the true statistics. So that's where having that planning in place is so important. What is, it, what is the average amount that it takes in a long-term care facility here in, in Williamson County? Does anybody know that? Oh, keep on going up. <laughs> it's close to eight to 10,000 a month in a long-term care facility in Williamson County. Now, it also depends where you live. Does anybody know what it costs, the annual cost in Alaska? You're worried about 
We don't worry about it. That's right. People don't really live there. The, 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 the reality is it's close to 170 to 200,000 a year up in Alaska. So it really depends on where you're going to be in retirement. Lafayette, Louisiana, about 30,000 a year. So if you need some cheap care, move down to Lafayette. I wouldn't do it, but it's up to you if you want to. Um, so the, the, the having that care in place is so important. And a lot of professionals say, well, you need to wait till you're 60 to get it. The reality is, are we still insurable at 60? So that's, I'm 37 years old and I have it. All right, the reality is it's time for you to get it when you know that it's been placed on your heart. That's something I need to look into. Because passing of assets, they're good ways and bad ways. And one of the good ways to do it is to be able to have a will in place, to be able to have all of your, your trust, your trustees down written, not just on a paper napkin, but have it written somewhere that people can use them and using a long-term care policy in a way that will be able to help you pass assets down to the next generation in a tax-efficient way. So it's very important to take a look at. Thanks, Costello. Um, so having that plan in place, like I brought some props, and I, that was kind of where I wanted to spend a lot of our time together. Anybody know what this is? That's a hammer, okay. But what, what can a hammer do? Drive nails. It can also destroy things, right? Um, it can be used for a lot of different ways. So this I kind of want us to look at as um, a potential divorce, uh, potential lawsuits, potential car accident, um, creditors, and bankruptcy. I kind of want us to look at the hammers this way. These are things that can impact the plan that you have for yourself and for what you leave for your beneficiaries. This is just a regular old piggy bank that I think my wife has had for a long time. Right? has a plug at the bottom. So you can put money in, but then easily take it out. Right? So it's, it's, it's there to, keep, to, to save, but you can still pull stuff out. This atrocious looking thing is, it does, and I, obviously I can't get anything out of it because there's no plug. I mean, it's one of those old ceramic piggy banks that once you put it in there, it's locked in, right? You can't get it out unless you break the hammer for using it in, a, in the purpose for which it was intended. Get the money out. So these are the, these are the kind of props I want to use, tools that I want to talk about, how you, what kind of estate plan that you can put in place um, during your lifetime to make sure that what Scott was talking about in terms of making sure that your beneficiaries receive what you intended for them to receive. This is just a, your straightforward revocable living trust. You put the money in whenever you need it, pull the plug, you get it out. It's very simple, right? So you get to create the bucket, you get to create this pig, you get to put money in the pig, and you get to take money out of the pig. There's no third party you have to go through. There's no secret handshake you have to know how you use your assets today. The same in, in your capacity as the one who created this this piggy bank. It's the same thing. There's no difference. But what this does is it makes sure that when you pass away, you don't have to go through probate. And I think Damaris is going to talk a little bit about probate next week. And probate is where you have to go to court and oversee the transfer of your assets from the person who's passed away to the beneficiaries named in the will. And that is a court-driven process. It's a public record. Anybody can walk into the street of the, off the street in the courthouse in the county in which you live, ask to see your will and see who's getting what and how they're receiving it. 
And we're all private citizens in this, in this building, so I don't think a lot of people are gonna go nosing around through our estate planning documents. But that's a possibility. Anybody can go and see what my will says, see what Scott's will says. I mean, it's just a, it's a matter of public record. Um, this trust, this revocable trust, for your beneficiaries can create, I'm gonna drop one of these things and it's gonna be a nightmare. Um, this revocable trust can create for the beneficiaries, whether that be a surviving spouse or your children, can create an irrevocable trust. So that if they ever get divorced, if they ever get themselves in a lawsuit, if they ever find themselves in the middle of a bankruptcy because they haven't been able to pay their bills, that hammer can't break this trust. It's, it's there protected for them for their health, education, maintenance, and support. So whatever assets they have in your, whatever the assets the beneficiary has in their individual name, certainly gonna be on the table to satisfy whatever legal obligation they've fallen themselves into being obligated to. But what they've inherited from mom and dad or grandpa and grandma is protected. It can't be touched and they can still use it for their benefit whenever they need it for say college education, braces, medical bills, or if they've fallen on hard times, just making sure that the monthly rent for the apartment is, is paid or the uh, utilities are, are taken care of. Um, so these are kind of the two ways that you can set up trusts for your, for your beneficiaries. And specifically to what Scott was talking about, and for those folks who do want to leave $200,000 to Scott, anybody if you want to leave money to Scott, um, for those folks who do want to avoid long-term care and making sure that Medicaid through 10 care doesn't take your home, take your, take your stuff, you'd want to give consideration to setting up something called a Medicaid Asset Protection Trust. And this is a trust whereby you put money into it, you put your house into it, you put a large brokerage account into it, you put a large investment account into this trust, something that you know that you're not going to need for at least five years. Uh, because that's the five years is the look back period that the state of Tennessee, that the federal government says that, the that any sort of state run Medicaid programs can look back. They can look back five years to see whatever transfers have been made. And if you've made a transfer within five years, you get long term care, but only after you've gone through what's called the penalty period. So 10 care is not going to pay for your medical care. You're going to have to figure out some way to have your family pay it. You may have to cash out some bonds, your retirement to make sure that you get the you get the care that you need until 10Care is actually gonna step in and start paying for, for your long-term care. But if you put the house in the trust, you put the bank account in the trust, you put whatever you know that you wanna use after five years in this trust and you make it five years, five years in one day, you need long-term care, state of Tennessee can't consider these assets to count against you for purposes of qualifying for, for 10Care. They're off the table. And another benefit is during your lifetime, you put the assets in this trust, you get sued, um, if you file for bankruptcy, these assets are off the table. I mean, it's, it, they can't come back and touch those assets. Now, a concern might be is, well, I've put assets in the trust. I put assets in this elephant. How do I get them out? What if I do need them at some point in the future? What if I need a car because it, I now am in a wheelchair? I need to have a wheelchair accessible van to take me to and fro. How do I pay for that? How do I pay for renovations in the home? if I'm in a wheelchair. Well, this trust, I, I wish I had this. Um, so we'll kind of go back to thinking about this thing now. So this is the irrevocable trust. You authorize your trustee, not you, you can't do this because if you do, well, I know I started, I started to mix, mix my props here, so I apologize. 
So ignore the elephant for a moment. We'll just go back to this. So pretend this is the irrevocable trust. Got, have I confused everybody sufficiently? Straight. Mission accomplished, Tony. Um, so this is the irrevocable trust now. This is what you're setting up for Medicaid asset protection purposes. But if you need money to get out of the trust, you want to ensure that there is a plug at the bottom that ensures that the trustee in its discretion can take money out. But they can't take the money out. Yes, go ahead. Sure. So you can name you can name your children as trustee. You can name an advisor as, as trustee. Somebody that you know that is going to be there and reliable for you to be able to pull the plug whenever it needs to be pulled, with the understanding that as your child being the beneficiary of the trust. It's going to lose some of that if it it, no, you get to no. So thank you. He gets the the trustee gets the money out of the trust, gives it to the child as the beneficiary. The child then puts that money into a bank account and spends it on your benefit. So if you needed the wheelchair, if you needed the house being retrofitted to accommodate a wheelchair, if you needed some sort of something to take care of you with, with respect to health care, they can then go spend that money on, on those purposes. It doesn't account against them for tax purposes. It doesn't count against you for qualifying purposes. It's legal money laundering is the way I've been explained to it. Legal money laundering. So the, gov the government allows you to go ahead. Yep. You can set these trusts to be taxed at the, t at the trust creator's uh, income. So if you create this trust, it's taxed to you. Everything flows onto your 1040 or 1099 or however you file your annual return. It's all taxed under your social security number. It's not taxed to the beneficiary. And, and that's one reason that it's so important to sit down with somebody like that. I mean, you know, LegalZoom does a great job of just setting up a simple will but when you're talking trust and you're talking being able to pass that money, if you just do it simply like that, there are no trustees or potentially no, no people that can help facilitate that. Where in that example, your child just goes, I need a new basketball. There it is. <laughs> by sitting down with somebody, they can go over the ramifications by not setting trust or, or putting trustees in places that will kind of guard it in a way that you want it to. So that's, that's where we kind of are with you know, folks who are typically 55 and older approaching retirement age, give consideration to setting up, excuse me, took it the wrong bucket, setting up this kind of trust, setting up a trust that says I can, I can keep my assets for at least five years, and if I ever need long-term care <clears throat> through 10 care, then I know that I can never have these assets counted against me for qualifying purposes. They can't, they can't be spent down. We've all heard the number 2,000 at some point. That's the amount of money that you're allowed to have, not one dollar, not one penny more, over $2,000 in order to qualify for, for 10 care. I mean, that is essentially nothing. You don't get to keep your brokerage accounts. At some point, the house is taken. But if you've set up a trust that keeps those assets protected for the period of time that I stated, five years, there's a way to ensure that what you built together as a husband and wife passes on down to your kids 
and can pass on down to your kids in a way that protects them from things like divorce, creditors, litigation. And the, the, the point of this plan is not to keep it all within the family, just within the family. You certainly want them to have an understanding of what it is, of what, what you've done, how it works for their benefit over the long term. But you want folks sitting down with you who is a financial advisor. You want somebody who's sitting down with you that's a part of the life insurance component. You want somebody sitting down with you if you've got a sick family member who's a healthcare coordinator that can say, these are the kind of things that we need to have done for mom or dad because they face this type of sickness or illness. It is not really just a, a cloistered plan. It is something for a ton of people in your sphere of influence to be a part of to make sure that everybody is playing their specific role in a way that makes sure that your plan is brought out to a successful fruition. It's not... It's not just for mom and dad and the kids. It's for, it is for a ton of advisors and for a ton of people to make sure that everybody's playing their, their part so your, your son beneficiary doesn't take the money that was intended for you and goes, by, goes to buy a, ba a bass boat. Okay. Um, thoughts, questions, recriminations? Medicaid, they're, they're commonly referred to as Medicaid Asset Protection Trusts. You can call them long-term care trusts. You can call them irrevocable trusts. Um, they go by many names. If you're using them on a regular basis to supplement your income to pay for this, that, and the other from your day-to-day -day affairs, that is going to count towards income that you have for that month if you're trying to qualify for 10 care. Uh, that, that's not, that's not going to be siphoned off or, or made differential. Right. You might, want to, you might want to set up a different kind of trust, one that we haven't discussed called the Qualified Income Trust, the Miller Trust, mm -hmm. that says, again, for qualification purposes, now we're getting in the weeds. Um, you know, your income goes into this qualified Miller Trust. So every month you're zeroing out for income purposes because you can't have above $2,313 of monthly income in order to qualify for Medicaid. So if you've got, if you've got any sources of income coming in, 10K or Medicaid is going to look at that to see if you can qualify or not. So, so in my example, if she would have taken a portion of those assets 
and created some type of qualified long-term care plan, be it a just a traditional long-term care plan or a hybrid plan. So purchasing a long-term yes, care Yes, ma'am. In, in my example, that's, yes, ma'am. That's what you were talking about. And that's then correct. she would have saved you. She would have been insured to be in that. That's correct, yes, ma'am. And she would have had, okay. And then I think to his point, the thing that would have gotten my grandmother is that five-year look back. Because in that example, it was only four years. So, but if it would have, she would have been able to have a lot more time, which we don't know how long the time we have. That's the example. So you're talking about finding a way to pay for it yourself before it happens, and you're talking about the way to be able to be sure that you could qualify for 10-care paying for long-term care. Am I understanding? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. yep. Without having to spend down all your other assets that weren't spent on the, on the long-term care policy. Money laundering is legal in this. Legal money laundering. Legal, yeah. I guess the point that you made there, I kind of looked at that with my mom and her issues with me. In a long-term care plan, you know, you have the you're only going to be able to go where they have a bed open. Right. And if it's in Knox County and you pass it up, I mean, there's a potential that you could put be pushed back on that list. And once you're in that facility, if that facility goes under 85%, there's a chance that they could lose their Medicaid um, privileges, move somewhere, you'd have to move somewhere else. What do you mean by that, Scott? What do you mean by that, go under 85%? So if there's, a, there's a certain percentage. If, you, if a nursing home goes under occupancy, they could lose Medicaid status where they would have to move to a different place. Well, you'd be you would be paying taxes if you took it out of your name and put it into a trust. So, I mean, you'd be you'd be paying taxes right off the right off the top to do something like that. And I don't, I would never recommend you do that to transfer a tax deferred vehicle and put it into any of these types of trusts. It's a way of just making sure that your beneficiary designations are updated to identify either the revocable trust or some variety of an irrevocable trust to be the beneficiary and then set up trust for your beneficiaries to receive them in a way that the RMDs can be calculated and spread out over their life expectancy rather than over yours. And there are also ways now, during the Obama administration, one of the things that they did is they, they came out with what's called a QLAT, which allows you to, right now RMDs start at age, the, the year you turn 70 and a half, but you can actually prolong that until age 80 now. And it have a protection element in there that you know, the creditors can't come in and get that money also. So there, so you, you what? So, you said what? QLAC. QLAC. It's, it's just, it's called QLAC. You can set up to 125,000 or 25% of your assets that you can defer till age 80 rather than having to pay at age 70.
Most people, have ne most people have never heard of it. They, that happened about three or four years ago. Well, that's the bell. Any final questions? Speak now, forever hold. That is a common refrain, a common refrain. And, 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 and personal philosophy and outlook, I mean, that, that totally drives what the kind of plan you want to put in place. It's not, it's never, you've reached 65 or 70 and a half or you're 80, you have to do this, you need to do this. It's all a matter of what you feel is right, what you think is best for your family and, and you know, public policy at, at large. So the funny thing is the government set up the system that it is and then they provide these little outlays for, for ways to set up trust that I've been describing. So it's... Kind of get your foot on the foot on the gas and the brake at the same time, but it's the rules that they set up, so we know we get to play with them. Bob, anything? Um, I was just going to say these are just ways of us becoming those that take advantage of the system that's in it. Say that again. Um, your plans are, are just ways to help us become those who are taking advantage of the system. Well, yeah. Okay. So now that, now that you all know how you can break the law, <laughs> legally, um, if, if I appreciate it. If you guys have any questions, I'll give you my email address, give you my phone number, and help you out. Thank you very much.